what we're going to be doing is we are going to be uh, taking a one week jump, intentional jump out of Acts um, for uh, an intentional purpose. Last week, we looked that uh, in our scripture, in Acts chapter 16, about the lessons from a missionary. As Paul, Silas, and Timothy were being sent out on the second missionary trip, we saw that a missionary's commitment, the missionary needed faithful courage, just a real sense of God's calling them, even into the face of danger. God was calling them to have courage, deep courage. We also saw that there was a, a priority within uh, Paul's ministry philosophy for mentorship. He chose, specifically chose Timothy and said, this one, he is the one that I desire to come with me. We also saw that there was a, a great need for contextualizing the gospel, to be able to compromise the things that we are able to compromise, but stand firm on those things, to be like a, a pillar on those things that we cannot Paul and Silas and Timothy are going out with the gospel. We too are finding ourselves as a body going out with the gospel. And the gospel, it creates worshipers. It does not just create converts. God's goal is through the gospel, penetrating the hearts, that it creates worshipers. It desires of so this morning, we're going to go back to Acts 24. I'm sorry, Exodus 24. With our focus specifically on the first nine verses of Exodus 9. We're going to see in this context what happens when, God's, when God desires to dwell with his people and what it does to his people. It creates extravagant So read along with me, starting at verse 1 of chapter 24. And then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come up near, shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came, and the people came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and, and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the twelve pillars according to the tribes of, of Israel. He sent, a, sent the young men of the people of Israel who who burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you is in accordance with all these words. Then Moses said, and Aaron, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders came up, and they saw the God of Israel. There under his feet, it was it under his feet, as it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait here and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses, with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up unto the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return from you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute 
them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And, Mount, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goat skins, the seal wood, oil for, for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and the, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for, for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastplate piece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture. Thanks be to God. As I was thinking about last week, about Paul, Silas, and Timothy going out with the gospel, I started thinking for myself and just really wrestling with the fact what does it look like? What does it mean to be like Paul? understand the cause of following after Christ. This man put himself intentionally in harm's way to share the gospel. The best news that he will ever receive can be shared freely, extravagantly in the face of danger. Paul believed the cause was question on Friday, Tom and I were kind of discussing this, kind of fleshing some things out. And I asked a question. And it's a question I'm going to ask you. And I don't want Sunday school answers. But what are the daily implications? The daily implications of fully believing the gospel. What are the Thank you. 
see here this morning in Exodus 24 that it contains all of the elements of what we normally do as a church in our gathered worship time. You, if you look carefully, you will see a call to worship. Aaron and uh, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders were called to worship. They were called, come, come to me. I'm calling you. There, the word was read following by a confession of faith. We will do all that it says. We will do all that it says. There was a covenantal sacrifice that was given, resulting by a communion meal. All of this, all of this points to the Christ of worship. Almost all the elements of worship were noted in this chapter, but there's one obvious omission. And this is the one that very rarely will you ever hear me preach specifically on, but it's necessary that I do preach it. One lacking thing in the first chapter, in verse, or chapter 24, one omission was the offering. The offering. A huge part, a huge part of our worship is offering up to God free will gifts. The offering plate is necessary, and it is vital for our worship. And in Exodus 25, we have the record of one such offering. God summoned Moses to come up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and there he would receive two copies of the Ten Commandments. It was an example of an ancient treaty kind of custom. And he would be responsible to teach these ten words, or ten commandments, to the covenant community. It was vital. Why was it vital? Because the law of God was a means of God's self-revelation. It was how God revealed himself to his people. God loves his and desires his, his fellowship with his people. He desires to reveal himself and relate to his chosen people. But if you know anything about God, the God of biblical history and our history today, the sovereign God is dangerous. He's dangerous. But for many of us, how do we view our sovereign Lord, our God? Most of us view God as a genteel grandpa with a really white beard, white robe, kind of just flowing around, right? He's always welcoming children into his arms. But if you look at, at God in all of Scripture, you will see that God is holy. His law reveals that God is holy and we are not. God's law condemns sin and sinners. And because he is holy and we are man, there is no way that man and God can live together. So how can God dwell amongst his people if he is a holy God and we are sinners? How is that possible? How can they be in his presence without being destroyed? Are you hearing the gospel yet, Papa? How is it possible for us to have this beautiful, wonderful relationship with a, a holy God when we ourselves are sinners? We begin to see in our text this morning, God has devised a way. God has devised a way. He made a plan and began to reveal that plan by commanding that his people make for him a tabernacle. And this tabernacle was God's temple in a tent. And this tabernacle was a means by which God could dwell with mankind without destroying humanity. It was the means by which a dangerous and holy God approached. The tabernacle was the means by which God's people would be assured of God's covenantal faithfulness. And it is He does this. One commentator wrote that for as long as Israel was camped in Sinai, that they were, quote, conscious of God's nearness. But once they set out on their journey, it seemed, as, seemed to them as though the link had been broken. Unless there 
were in their midst a tangible symbol of God's presence. The tabernacle was a perpetual extension of the bond that was forged at Sinai. The description of the tent-like structure that will occupy the next 16 chapters of the book of Exodus. Exodus. 16 chapters to God's tabernacle. 16 of everything, of how it's got to be built and who's going to build it and what kind of materials all go into 16 chapters. There are more verses dealing with the tabernacle than any other subject in the Old Testament. 16 chapters. That should indicate to us, God's covenant people, the importance and our need to study it thoroughly. And as much as possible. That is why, and I know it sounds absolutely crazy, that is why I'm considering the book of Exodus as our next book of choice to study through as a church. Exodus. I dare not tell you how many weeks it is. <laughs> Keep going, brother. Keep going. Back to Exodus. <laughs> and I won't. <laughs> But I think it's critical for us to understand that if God spends that much time describing his tabernacle, his desire, which, which portrays for us his desire to dwell perfectly amongst us, should we not understand even in greater depth the importance of God's presence? In my studies, I found a recent admission of a Time magazine that featured an article about the explosion of the information of information and artificial intelligence. There's just, as you know, there's just been an explosion of information and scientists trying, trying to discover artificial intelligence. There are a number of thinkers who believe that by 2045, and don't let this scare you, but by 2045, computers will be so developed that they will begin to think by themselves. This is referred to as singularity. In fact, some of the singularists believe that sooner or later mankind will become immortal through by man and machine becoming one. The author of this article said that due to such technological advances, death loses its sting once and for all. And as I read about this incredible exponential explosion, my thoughts came back to this and said, you know, how, how does 2045 and Exodus 24 and 25 come together? I was tempted to think, is there any kind of possible relevance from the ancient story of these people building a tent in, for worship to the world that we live in? It has all the relevance in the world and in spite of all man's amazing technological advances and innovations God has fundamentally not changed one bit over the centuries we may not be living in tents but we are no different than these people inside them we are still sinners and God is still dangerous. Man is still a creature who needs a creator. Man is still a sinner who has an enormous problem. How can man be made right with God? Mankind is still faced with the insurmountable problem of the sting of death. And the tabernacle points to us all the answers to the question about removing the sting of death. Both points us ultimately to Jesus Christ, who enables God to dwell with man. So we're going to approach this under a few different headings. And our first heading, Connor, you can throw up there, is an offering to God. An offering to God. A.W. Pink. Read his stuff is brilliant. A.W. Pink notes that the materials out of which the tabernacle 
was to be made were to be provided by the voluntary offerings of Dubrodi the host. The great Jehovah, who inhabits the praises of eternity, condescended to take up his abode in a boarded and curtained <coughs> tent erected by those who desired his presence in their midst. This tent was built by those who desired his presence amongst them. We should note from this text that God desires to dwell with men, but it is at a required cost. A cost that would be borne by his people. Did you see that? God did not rain down all these things from heaven. It didn't magically appear as man did. Gold, silver, bronze, stones, which would be used for settings, skins, leather. All these things would be provided by their people. Therefore, an offering would be taken. Matthew Henry, a Puritan, wrote this. The sanctuary to be built was intended for their benefit and comfort. And they must be at the expense of it. God's dwelling was to their benefit and their comfort. They were being given the opportunity to prove their previous confession of faith. We should know, too, that this offering was both commanded and at the same time voluntary. That is, God commanded that an offering be collected, and he specified even what should be given. Give these things. He gave a list, but he did not command how much each was to give. It was an act of worship on the part of the people. The determining factors were quite simply how much they appreciated what God had done. How much they trusted him. And how much they valued his presence. The only kind of offering that was acceptable by God is that which comes from a willing heart. That is why God's commandment is, is to give is a conditional one. From every man whose heart moves him. You see this in verse 2? From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. For me. This is not a, a grudge giving. It's a grace giving. It is grace. It, it is giving motivated by the grace of God. It is what Paul, Paul describes as cheerful giving. That's right. Cheerful giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Cheerful giving. The Hebrew term for the, the phrase whose heart moves him is literally to impel, to urge, to incite to something. It, it may include the idea of spontaneity. Yes, spontaneity is biblical. Perhaps the reason why we are often such poor stewards, hear me on this, the reason that we are often such poor stewards is because we are often too calculated. I love Dave Ramsey. You live fully by Dave Ramsey and his law, you may be missing a spontaneity opportunity. When we give with our heart, this means more than just receiving. But he included that. Though maybe this was also included. To the Hebrew mind, to do something with the heart means to do so having thought through the issue. The word heart referred to in the Hebrew, Hebrews is not the seed of your emotions of, whoo, this feels euphoric and just, ah, oh, really warm and fuzzy. That's not what the Hebrews, when they think of the heart, like we as Americans think, oh, my heart is just beating for you. They, when they hear it, it is more the seat of thought, purpose, and will. Thus the offering was to come to not merely those who felt like giving, 
but from those who knew they were committed to the offering as the right thing to do. Quite literally, this phrase can be translated as whose heart makes him vow. Alan Cole, the commentator, says that man, he cannot help himself. It also included doing something as an act of your will. Thus the commandment was that the children of Israel were to think about what they were doing. Putting this all together, here's kind of the gist of these commandments. God commanded those who thought about God's deliverance. They were taken out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, of death, of hopelessness, and they were delivered in a miraculous, only God-saving kind of way through the Red Sea, saw the, the waves crash over all of Egypt, and they were to think about how God delivered them. And they were to, they were to think about what it means to have God's presence, even though they knew what they deserved. They were to think about God delivering us, God's presence in our midst, what we rightly deserve. And then, therefore, they were to think about how they should respond with a thoughtful and a grateful vow to make an offering to him. Perhaps we could say it this way. Those who have been saved by grace Power of God. We desire to make a meaningful vow to give back to God. 2013. Your God is saying that He was pleased to receive their gift. And but further, God instructed them what to do. And this gave them a sense of purpose and meaningful direction in their giving. They could be certain that what they gave was wise and a fruitful investment. Because God instructed them how to give, what to give. Now let's apply this. And Phil Reichen's tome from which I would probably base this alleged Exodus series. The book is about yay thick. Riken observes this. And I think, Connor, you can put this first critical. Grace compels our gratitude. We should give as much as we can, as soon as we can, with the hope that someday soon we will be able to give even more. <coughs> this is an excellent way to test our spiritual progress because what we do with our money shows where our priorities lie. Does this hit me hard? Am I becoming more generous? If not, it is a sign of my spirit. God delights in receiving spontaneous offerings that flow from joyful hearts as an expression of trust, as an expression of gratitude to God for what he has done in and through us. What God is doing in our world. Our giving is to be purposeful and according to our ability. 
Okay? Even hear that. Look at Acts 11, 27 to 30, 1 Peter 4, 10, through, and, and verse 11, 2 Corinthians 8, 10 through 14. It's according to our ability, and it's purposeful. If you can't give with the heart, if you can't give with the heart, then check on your heart. If your heart refuses to make a vow, then ask the Lord to give you a spiritual, cardiovascular shutdown. So what kind of graces choose this gracious? Consider the following. We have been delivered from guilt. So everything that you just heard and felt, God has delivered you from guilt. You may be sitting in conviction, but he's delivered you from guilt. He has delivered us from hell. He has gone from being, we have gone from being enemies to being his friends. We've been adopted out of the devil's family and into the family of God. We've been delivered from the bondage of sin. We have, we have glorious promises of full and final victory in Christ. We have God on our side. We have been promised a kingdom that will never end. Okay, now think about that. Some of you think about investments and where should I put our money, and then you watch the stock market kind of do these kind of things, right? This is a kingdom that will never end. It is not like the state of Illinois, which should go bankrupt. It is based deeply on God's goodness, his grace, and his kingdom will never end. Therefore, it is a great place for our investment. We have been provided with all that we need to contribute. We serve an all-wise God who has already made a plan. He has gone before us. We have experienced God's power to meet our greatest need. Those are some of the graces that should make us gracious. Second thing that I want us to look at is the objective of God. What was God's objective? Well, I want you to notice that there's some key words that kind of move throughout the rest of the story of Scripture. It's not found just here in Exodus 24 and 25. It's found throughout all of Scripture. Verse 8 speaks of a sanctuary. The term gives us some indication of the character of of this piece of construction. It speaks to the issues of God's holiness. And of course, this introduces the issue of separateness. To dwell with God, or rather, for God to dwell with man, means that man must come out from the world. The second term of importance is, is this word dwell. Dwell. The Hebrew term, Shakan. When I first heard that, immediately a song kind of came into my head. Shakan. It means to let oneself down or to settle down, like the pillar of fire in the cloud. It's the same word that is translated resting. The picture here is that God is desiring to settle down with his people in relationship. God wants to settle down with you. He wants to be with you. He wants to be in relationship with you. The third word is tabernacle in verse 9, which is related to the, the, the word above that we just talked about. It sometimes is translated the dwelling place or the habitation, but it is usually translated as tabernacle. Here it is mentioned for the first time. And it will become the center of the blessed experiential presence of God for his people. God will be tabernacling with his people. He will be dwelling, habitating with them. It is the place where God chose to dwell, to be near his people. As uh, Moiter observes, the Lord proposed to live among his people, but... <coughs> His indwelling awaited, awaited the responsible giving, which would provide materials for the temple. 
God didn't just say, hey, I'm going to dwell among my people, boom, and put myself in the middle of them, because what would have happened? Destruction and death. God waited for his people. So I'm going to pull this trying to pull it all together. God gave the tabernacles to his people as a means by which he would dwell with them. And his people would be, according to Isaiah uh, 42, his people would be a light to lighten the nations. They would show forth his glory. As God dwelled with them, they would show his glory to the nations. And the tabernacle was a means by which the surrounding nations would know that God dwelt with his people. You see, for God, this, this was all a missional tool by which God, by which the glory of God was manifested. This was all part of God's missional advancement. The surrounding people would observe God's presence among his people. God's objective over the years, over the centuries, has not changed one iota. Not one iota. His passion is still for his glory, that he would shine among the nations. His passion is to dwell among his people. You, me, us. God's passion is to shine out. His glory would be made known. And through such dwelling, he is passionate, passionate that his glory is known as he lavishly loves his people. Our church needs to grasp this objective. And it is the objective that will drive our passions passion for evangelism and mission. Since God's objective is to dwell with saved sinners, so this must be the objective of the church. This brings us to my third point. My third point is our God-given opportunity to fulfill this objective. God gave the children of Israel an opportunity to line up with his objective. And all those who got this freely gave what God had given to them. So much so that, in fact, that Moses had to ask the people to stop giving. Look at, look at Exodus 36 later on. There was an, an, an abundance of materials for this task. Ultimately, Exodus 36, Moses said, enough, folks. You have given enough. Did you ever imagine a church ever saying, okay, woo, enough. We're cutting it off here. We're only going to you know, pass the offering plate the first two rows because the rest we will just have way too much. <coughs> But there's something about the heart of these people desiring the presence of God in their midst and wanting to see God's objective going forward, that they will give freely out of recognition of the grace that's been poured out on them. The tabernacle would ultimately be replaced by the temple, but its purpose would be the same. Today we, we have neither a tabernacle nor a temple at which we make God's glory known. And all well-meaning as some churches are, church buildings like this should not be considered as tabernacles or temples. They're just buildings to be used and consumed for God's mission. The church, rather, is the church of the living God, rather, is the temple not bricks and mortar, but spiritual stone making up a living, a breathing, a mobile of the living God. The huge difference in our day from that in which the children of Israel lived in is now the temple is a multinational, a multi-ethnic, a multicultural temple. We must therefore be passionate and joyfully committed to do all that we can, all 
we can so that other peoples, different from ourselves, other people in other nations, in other social economic circles, all kinds of different people can experience God dwelling amongst them. in the scene, we all need to give sacrificially. And some need to give abundantly. God is dwelling, hear this, God is dwelling, building his dwelling place here amongst us, in us and through us. And it is costly for him. It cost him him, his son. And it cost us, our sons, our daughters, as well as our sisters. Let us realize that we have an opportunity to line up with God's objective. All of us. Just as the people were asked to make a free will offering for the construction of the tabernacle, for the spreading of the glory of God, so we are in the exact same position. We see it in the cost of the Great Commission. Many of us live in an overly spiritualized mentality that it should cost the church absolutely nothing. The reality is there is a material cost. There is a material cost in order for God to dwell with his people. You see that in Exodus 25? There is a material cost. And those with whom God dwells are the ones on whom the cost falls. But what a privilege it is. <clears throat> I want you to hear that. It's a privilege. It's not a burden. And those who have been touched by God's amazing saving grace are compelled by his grace to give so that others too can dwell with God for their good and for God's glory. This is what is to drive our mission thrust. In fact, this is what is to drive everything that the church does and is involved in. That people are reached with the gospel and that they are saved by grace so that God's glory may more fully be present in this world. Of course, in our day, we're not investing in a physical place for God to dwell in, rather God's dwelling place in his people. But these kinds of churches need to be planted. We have said since day one that we want to be a church that starts churches. How do you do that? It requires, it requires a cost. Missio Day Church alone received well over a quarter of a million dollars to start us. And much of that has not come from our own, but from outside. It costs. Missionaries need to be sent. Supplies needed to be provided for. And those who have been touched by grace are the most, are the ones most supernaturally who do the supplying, the material supplying, rather than those who have not known God's grace. It is our responsibility and privilege. But we should also be compelled by grace. It should be noted at this point that it was in fact the Gentiles who were the human source for what was given by God's grace. If you go back far enough, God compelled the Egyptians to give. Remember when they were leaving? Pharaoh said, get out of my land and take anything and everything. And what did the Egyptians do? They just, it's kind of like a, a Jewish Mardi Gras, throwing beads, <laughs> throwing jewels, grab it and go. Grab it and go. God compelled the Egyptians to give, and then his grace compelled his people to pass this on to his where did the Egyptians get the, or the Israelites get the gold and the silver and the bronze and all the fine clothing? They were slaves, right? Where did they get it? They received it by grace. The Israelites were giving and above and beyond the need because God's presence 
same time realized that they were in a covenant relationship with him and therefore they were saved. They desired the presence of this terrible, scary God in their midst, but they wanted to keep him safe. The tabernacle was the means of keeping the fire in the fireplace. The tabernacle was the means of keeping God's fire in the fireplace. And they were most happy to, to do that. And the gospel compel, compels us to do the same. We are grateful, are we not, for that God dwells with us and we with him? But we know that through the gospel, this is only possible. This is only possible because God has kept the fire of his fullness, of his glory, contained somewhat in the fireplace of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fireplace. And when you compare Ephesians 3.17 and Colossians 1.9 and John 1.18 and 1.14, this is precisely what we're taught. Jesus Christ, being very God of very God, was the fireplace of all of God's glory. But the incarnation was the means by which the fire of God's glorious wrath against sin was kept away from us. Apart from this, this truth, this fact, we would be eternally lost. Experiencing spiritual death under God's righteous and glorious wrath. Now let me ask you this. If you have experienced such grace, do you not feel compelled? Compelled to do what you can and to enable others to experience this grace. Do you not wish to help others to experience the, the fire being kept in the fireplace? As Paul said, he himself was a debtor to all because his debt excuse me, had been paid. Paul was a debtor. You're a debtor to somebody because Somebody shared the gospel. You're a debtor to all. You're a debtor to all. We're all debtors because somewhere the grace of God has been shared. Therefore, since our debt has been paid, should it not be paid forth? David Platt puts it this way. Because, this talking about Paul, because he is owned by Christ, he owes Christ to the world. And thus, Every saved person on this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. In other words, since the grace of God has been poured out you on you, and you have been saved by the, from the fire of God, should you not pour it forward to those who need to hear the grace of God? <clears throat> so I ask, are you willing to keep the fire in the fireplace? What are you willing to contribute to enable God to dwell with man? What are you willing to part with so that God can be glorified in the midst of those who need to experience his grace? What are you prompted by grace to give for the glory of God and for the good of others. The reality is that God has cared for us and provides for us. His providence is good. He cared for the children of Israel with manna from heaven and water from, from like a well. He promised that their shoes would never wear out for 40 years. God providentially cares for our needs. And neither their garments would even <clears throat> So what was their need for gold and silver? 
God had promised to meet their needs, all of them. They were free to give all their gold and silver. Church of Lord Jesus Christ has much offerings. And I want you all to have this. It doesn't matter where you are in your financial circumstances today. It does not matter where you are in your, your uh, are you starting off at the bottom rung or are you at the top of the, the corporate chain or somewhere in the middle. It doesn't matter how much debt that you financially have incurred in your life. We have much opulence. Some of you are going, oh, Jerome, you know how much you know like our rent is? You know how much debt we have? You know what we've just happened? We have much opulence. We have a lot more than we need as individuals. And thus, there is a lot more that is available for the spread of the gospel. Yes, God expects us to give of the access that he has caused us to have. The access. Some of you are going, we don't have any access. Let's just be honest. We all have access. All of us. First Timothy 6 says this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, they are to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as, the as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. God does not give us large sums so that we can invest it in bigger and better toys. And I don't want to, I don't want to get into a debate of what constitutes a toy or how big of a house is big enough or what you should have or should not have, I simply want to appeal to you from the word of God to seek to be honest before God. Be honest. Be real. The question is, of how much is enough between you and the Lord? The Lord takes this issue seriously. So how serious are you? We need to ask the question, why has God given us have given us access to the blue, the Israelites given them access to blue and scarlet dyes. And if you look in some of the Hebrew stuff and some of the commentaries, some of these leather hides were not actually goats, but from manatee-like creatures found in the Red Sea. Why did God give them access to these strange trees. Why, in fact, did he plant them where he did? Further, why had God get, had given to us gold and silver and copper? I seriously doubt that he did so that because he wants for us to spend it all on ourselves and all on our families. God is, and I don't doubt this, God has given us so that we could wisely invest it in his work so that he can dwell among the nations. Just as he, you would have been made glad in the gospel, so he desires that the nations be glad in the gospel. Opulence is for the purpose of offering. Opulence. So can we get four motivating questions?
said, we're the whole realm of nature nine. That we're a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my that our talk about our faith in Christ is actually only that, just talk. Or maybe put it a little bit more crassly, a little harshly. When it comes to contributing to the spread of the dwelling place of God, we are called to put our money where our mouth is. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then there's an expectation that we will prove it in practical ways. One which one confess with our mouths that we believe that Jesus is Lord and yet at the same time do not trust him with our wallets has been found guilty of speaking out both sides of the world. Third, saying that we're suggesting that you can purchase God's blessings at all. I'm not a health and wealth guy. I'm not suggesting that the Bible teaches that God manifests his presence according to the size of our offering. Not at all. But what I am saying is that money can rob us <coughs> of our experience of the presence of God. And the blessings. So are we going to separate, separate?
Have you considered the loss that are facing the fire of God outside of his borders? Have you considered the glory that is not being given to God amongst nations and the need for us to do something about this? If after considering these things you have no compulsion to give, then do not give. Do not give. We need to observe that there is an assumption in this passage that those who are delivered by God's grace will participate in an extravagant form of worship. After all, if one is not willing from the heart to contribute to the opportunity to worship, is it not safe to assume that they may not be a worshiper in the first place? What would you be willing to give so that God may dwell such a degree that you are willing to part with things so that it may become a reality. I urge you take seriously God's call to us to be a light to the nations. In Frankfurt, Mokina, New Lenox, Joliet, Bourbon Egg, Tank Key, Keatone, Orland Park, Tinley Park, and beyond. God is calling us, not just other churches, he's calling us to be a light to the nations. And we do so because of his sovereign grace. He has made us to dwell with him in Christ. And let us do all that we can, brothers and sisters, do all that we can so that he can dwell with his people in all the nations. Finally, the question is, yes, God dwell with you. If not, if God does not dwell in you, then you can, then you are in no condition to meet with God. For his the fire of his wrath will not remain in the fireplace, but rather it will engulf you forever. Yes, and hell. And I, am I trying to frighten you? I don't know if frighten is the right word. I am trying to give you the most vivid reality that yes. You can try to hit, try to whistle in the dark like the futurist in Time Magazine that you're never going to feel the sting of death. But the reality is that you can you will face the sting of death apart from Christ for eternity. Or you can face reality and repent of your sin, confessing that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. And so today. 